Are you an Amazon shopper like Patra and I? Do you love Off Air with Emily and Patra? When you're ready to search the depths of Amazon, visit us at offairwithep.com first. Click on the Amazon ad and continue shopping like normal. This helps keep Off Air with Emily and Patra going strong. We receive a small percentage of any purchases you make through our affiliate link, but it's literally zero extra costs to you. Psychotic geeks obsessed with every little detail. It'll never get on the air. Well, I think it's good for a show to go off the air before it becomes stale and repetitive. I've just been informed that we are going off the air. Off air with Emily and Catherine. Look at this. This one's funny. And like 100% accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I made, okay. I made the most delicious dinner I've ever had in my life last night. Um, what did you make? It was so good. Okay, so I made this cheesy chicken Mexican skillet. Okay. And it had, obviously, chicken and cheese. <laughs> cheese. <laughs> um, but it had, like, it had sautéed peppers and onions, Rotel tomatoes, mm. and green chilies. Um, I love Rotel and everything. Garlic powder. I do, too. Some salt and pepper, um, riced cauliflower. You know, I love that. I actually, I want that today. It was so good. Mm. And then I put jalapenos and sour cream on top and some olives on top too. Mm. And it was freaking delicious. Was it? So freaking good. I brought it, for, brought some for lunch because I was like. Yeah, girl. Mm. So I love that. That sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it was man. really easy to make. It only took like a half hour. It took a little longer because I had to cook the chicken, mm-hmm. but it only took like a half hour to make it. And I was like, oh, that's nice. my favorite meal now. I love that. It's so good. Ugh. So that's what happened. That's nice. Amelia made me potato soup for Mother's Day. It was mm. really good. I remember you saying she was going to make that. Yeah. Um, and I got some cake. Yeah. It was pretty good, too. What kind of cake? Uh, yellow cake with chocolate icing. And then... Mm. I'm not going to say Amelia did a bad job, but you know how, (laughs) but, but you know how if you make it in circle pans, you use two pans. Yeah. She just put it all in one pan and it got burnt around the edges, but not in the middle, Mm. (laughs) but we still took some to my mom and ate it. And then, uh, my boyfriend, Joe brought me over Mexican street corn that he made for his mom and I got drunk last night and ate it and it was delicious. I love that. (laughs) I love it so much. Oh, goodness. That was the end to my mother's day, so. That's a good end. Yeah, I liked it. That's fine. Pretty good. And he only had a few minutes because he was visiting his mom and then had to pick his son up, but he stopped by to say happy mother's day and to give me corn and left also more cake. (laughs) I'm just getting fatter and fatter by the second, and I'm happy with it. I'm fine with it. I also learned how to make a keto lava cake. Because I really just wanted a piece of juicy cake. That's all I wanted. So I made it. And it was so good. Was it? Yeah, it was. So good. I tried a different recipe last night. I like the recipe from Saturday night better. But Mm. it's okay. You live and you learn. You live and you learn. It was still good. I'm sure of it. Chocolate (laughs) cake. Is it? So it was keto friendly? Mm Mm-hmm. So did it not have sugar? It had. um, Because that's a thing too, right? Yeah. I'm so confused. Uh, erythritol, so it's a natural mm. sweetener instead of like sugar. Okay. Like yesterday's, so the one on Saturday that was really good, it had almond flour and then like an egg and cocoa powder and sweetener, I think was really mm-hmm. all it had. And then yesterday's was like a lot, a shit ton of cocoa powder, some baking powder, a okay. shit ton of that sweet. Like it was like, it made two little ramekins of it where the mm-hmm. whereas Saturday it only made one, but it was like a shit ton Really? Stuff. Like, hmm. it was like four tablespoons of cocoa powder, and I only used like a tablespoon and a half the night before. Yikes. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's about to be chocolate. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, goodness. It was really good, though, and I was real excited. I, I make. I really wanted some chocolate cake. <laughs> That's all I wanted. <laughs> I have this peanut butter cookie recipe that doesn't take flour. Oh, I'm glad the lid was on that. Yeah, me too. Um, so, it's flourless. And I always make that when someone needs, like, a gluten thing mm-hmm. or a gluten-free thing. Mm-hmm. So I guess it would be, like, the same because it's, like, a ton of eggs, a ton of baking powder, no flour, peanut butter, yeah, no butter, mm-hmm. and then sweetener. Mm-hmm. But I use sugar. Right. But I bet you could use not sugar. I'm sure you could. And different peanut butter. Probably. I don't so, know. So 
it was really weird this morning. <laughs> I got up with Christopher because I was like, why not? Right. And he gets up at 545. Mm-hmm. So I still have like an extra like half hour when he left Ooh. before I had to leave. Look at you. So it was really weird. I was like, I felt like I didn't do like I just like sat there all morning. Right. Did you feel like you were like playing hooky a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, I got to go. Oh, no, you don't have to go. You don't have to go yet. So, like, I took my time. I had a cup of coffee before I even left. Ooh, that's, I, like, glamorous, luxurious. I know. Yeah. And then I, so I had a cup of coffee, and I, like, sat on the bed while he was getting ready because our bathroom's not big enough for both of us to get ready. Yeah. So I, like, sat on the bed while he was drinking my coffee while he was getting ready, and I was already dressed and mm-hmm. just sitting there looking at my phone, drinking some coffee, and then he went out to go, like, make his lunch and stuff. So that's when I started to get ready. Mm-hmm. And I, like, took my time, washed my face, did my makeup. Nice. Like, I didn't do my full face, but— You look beautiful. Because I felt my—I was having an okay skin day besides this one pimple on my cheek. But <laughs> and I was like, I was, like, took my time and did my makeup and drank my coffee. And then he was like, all right, I'm leaving. And I was like, okay, bye. And then I sat there and I was like, I still have, like, at least a half hour before I need to oh walk my out gosh, the door. yeah. And then so I kind of— Poked around, fed the cat some treats. Aww. Like, I bet the I cats do? feel like they're special. Yeah, they're like, special. Ooh. ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and then I left, and I got into Columbus at 7.15. And I was like— Oh, no. No. So early. <laughs> so I went to Kroger. I did a little grocery shop. Oh, Emily. <laughs> like, oh, my okay. goodness. Your long, luxurious morning. I what's know. happened? I don't understand what's going on. Aww. I guess now in the, I guess I could probably like use that time and like go work out or something, but that's eh. probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely going to take some getting used to to like figure out this whole morning thing. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah. Sorry. I definitely felt awake when I, was on my way here. Right. Which was good. Right. <laughs> but I was also You didn't like, need a nap in the parking lot when you got here. Correct. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Um, the morning went good. So me and Emily, we're like the, we're the B team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've been B teaming it for a little while again. Mm-hmm. And now they've got their star player. Is this? It does not cement to sound crappy. I don't know. I feel like it just does. <laughs> so we have an, a new morning show host. Mm-hmm. So I'm with someone new and no more Emily. And I missed you this morning. No, I missed you too. Can I move this? I feel like I can't see you. Yeah, it's really close, right? Okay, okay good. <laughs> I was like, man, what's happening? I was like, um, <laughs> whew. leaning over. So we're all like giddy to be together again. I know. I know. We're also recording the day that this goes out because we had a real busy week last week. Oh, man. Yeah, it was a rough, rough week. It was, it's, do we it say that insane. every... We say that every time, but it was yeah. just we had an event. Um, a bunch of people were out from work because of deaths. Yeah. Yeah. We had three deaths and not in the workplace, but family members of people in the workplace yeah. last week. And it was just like... One thing after another. Right? And there's, let's see. So there's five morning show hosts, and three of the five of us had, like, deaths in our families. Yeah. And so that's the third one. So we're all set. Mm -hmm. We've we've got, we've reached our magic number. It comes in threes. And we're ready to move on. I feel like my stomach just made a little. It did. I heard it. Goodness. I wonder if I could hear it on. I don't know. Recording. Um, did you see that Doris Day died? I did, right before we walked in here. So that kind of scares me that it comes in threes because we've already had our three for the year. Oh, my God, we have. So. Frick. It's okay. It's all it's right. Okay. It's It'll all right. be all right. It's okay. We can do it. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I almost wore my skate park shirt today, yeah. but I was like, no, you just wore it, dummy. <laughs> no, you just wore it. No, I was like, I don't want to dress nice today. Mm. So I didn't. Good for you. You look comfy and And I really wanted to wear my tennis shoes again. Yeah, are you wearing them? Yeah. You look cute in your tennis shoes. Thank you. I really wanted to wear them again, and I was like, well, can't wear them with any other outfit besides leggings and a crap T-shirt. Well, it's not really a crap T-shirt. Right. A T-shirt. A Mm T-shirt. So I'm wearing a a free swag T-shirt today, too. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to wear a T-shirt today. We're kind of sort of matching. Yeah. Community. Friends. <laughs> I'm uh, just a word cloud today. Environment. Okay. Uh, Off air with Emily and Patra. Uh, that's all. I'm sorry. Oh, it went okay today, though? It went okay. It went all right. Good. It was pretty good. Um, it was nice to, like, know the new person instead of, like, trying to get to know them on air, which is what tends to happen because 
um, our host used to work here before, and we were friends, so yeah, it was nice. You had an already an established <clears throat> relationship. Yeah, it was pretty good, pretty good. But it was not Patra and Emily. It was not off air with Emily and Patra. It was not. It was not. So cool. Anyway, all right. Yeah. So I can't. Now we have to figure out a new time for me to catch you up on all my life drama. I know, right? So Ugh. we'll have to schedule a meeting like every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we had a, a good solid three and a half hours of chit chat time. Chit chat time. Bitching and moaning. I know. And I'm like, uh, well, Emily doesn't even know all the stuff that's going on with me. Okay. Idiots. It's fine. My son has a band concert tonight. Yeah. Um, I think it might be his last one because he's out of he's not oh, doing yeah. band next year. So Ooh. yeah. How do we feel? Uh okay. He uh-huh. also had a a uh, report due mm-hmm. that I definitely came and printed stuff out on Mother's Day yeah. for him. My dear sweet son. What a motherly thing for you. I to know. Do. I'm such a good mommy. Is it just like his band concert or is it a combined band concert? It's the sixth grade band okay. concert. Well, that's good that it's not sixth grade, middle school, high school. Oh, they do that sometimes. Jazz band, pep band, oh. marching band, mm. orchestra. <laughs> oh, and I found out that I'm the the pit mom this year. Oh. Amelia's a junior, but there aren't any seniors, so they need one of the junior parents to be. I'm so sorry. That's I burped okay. a little. To be the pit mom, which means I get to. Bring them treats and show up the other section moms. Get it, girl. That's right. That's what's going to happen. We're talking flavor ice over band camp. We're talking the first chili football game. They get hot chocolate in front of everybody, Mm. but just for the pit. Well, yeah. Should have been in pit. Should have been in pit. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) Why am I hating on teenagers right now? Oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so what, who are you? Are we going to talk about murder, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Did you do somebody good? Um, it's not really a murder, this one. <gasps> oh, Emily's been waiting for me to be ready forever. <laughs> and I love you and it's appreciate okay. you and no your patience. That's no big deal. I appreciate you and your patience. We get to do this twice this week. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you ready for that? <laughs> I'm totally ready. I'm going to be ready Wednesday on time. You have a remote on Wednesday. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's yeah. Okay. It's okay. Okay. It's well, okay. We'll get it done. Everything's fine and perfect. It's fine. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the Gardner Museum heist. Ooh, yeah. I don't even know this. Well, I'm going to tell you about it. It's good that you don't know about it because I'm going to tell you. I liked I liked your, well, I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> oh, my God. Around midnight on Sunday morning, March 18th, 1990, a red Dodge Daytona pulled up near the side entrance of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum along Palace Road. Um, I don't remember where this is. <laughs> like what? Loca- like locale? <laughs> what, where? where? <laughs> Palace Road. Is that what you said? Yes. Gosh, I'm paying attention. Palace Road. In Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> we knew it was somewhere big. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, two men with fake police uniforms waited for at least an hour in the car, possibly trying to avoid being noticed by the people leaving a St. Patrick's Day party nearby. That's me every time I'm trying to leave my apartment. Yeah. Just waiting You're until like, everybody in the hallway is out of the way and I want to go unnoticed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Around 1 a.m., security guard Richard Abath returned to the front desk after patrolling the museum to switch positions with a fellow guard, who was the only other person in the building. At this time, he opened and quickly shut the Palace Road door, claiming he was trained to do so um, to ensure the door that to ensure that the door was locked. He claimed security logs from other nights would show that he did this many times previously. At 1:24 a.m. One of the two men outside pushed the buzzer near the door and told a bath they were policemen and heard a disturbance in the courtyard and requested to be let inside. He knew he shouldn't let them in because they were uninvited guests, but he was unsure whether the rule applied to police officers, Hmm. which I get. Mm -hmm. Um, He could see the men, believe them to be police officers based on their uniforms, and with his partner on patrol throughout the museum, a bath decided to buzz the men in. When the intruders arrived at the main security desk, one of them told him that he looked familiar and that there was a default warrant around out for his arrest. Abath ste- stepped out from behind the desk where the only alarm button to alert police could be accessed. He was quickly asked for his ID, ordered to face the wall, and then handcuffed. 
Avast believed the arrest was a misunderstanding until he realized he hadn't been frisked for being hand- before being handcuffed, mm. and one officer's mustache was made of wax. Wax? <laughs> I'm sorry, did you tell me the year? 1990. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Made of wax>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Couldn't, my eyebrows. <laughs> couldn't pop down to the, the joke shop and pick up one of those right? sticky, hairy mustaches. You can get them for 50 cents at a vending machine. <laughs> no. Look like Mario, but it's wax better one. than wax anyway. Yep. The second oh. security guard arrived minutes later and was also handcuffed after he asked the intruders why he was being arrested. The thieves explained that they were not being arrested, but rather this was a robbery, and proceeded to take the guards to the museum's basement. They handcuffed them to the pipes and wrapped duct tape around their hands, feet, and heads. Since the... Ooh, did you hear that? I did. (laughs) (laughs) Since the museum was equipped with motion detectors, the thieves' movements throughout the museum were recorded. After tying up the guards, they went to the upstairs Dutch room. As one of them approached Rembrandt's self-portrait, which was done in 1629... A local alarm sounded, which they immediately smashed. (laughs) My goodness. They pulled the painting off of the wall, attempted to take the wooden panel out of its heavy frame, but they were unsuccessful, so they left the painting on the floor. They cut Rembrandt's The Storm on the Sea of Galilee out of the frame, as well as A Lady and a Gentleman in Black. They also removed Vermeer's The Concert and Govert Flink's Landscape with Obelisk from their frames. Additionally, they also took a Chinese bronze goo, which is a tall wine breaker with a trumpet-like top. Oh. I had to Google it. Okay, good. From from the Shang Dynasty. (laughs) (laughs) Elsewhere in the museum, they stole five Degas drawings and an eagle finial. The finial sat at the top of a Napoleonic. (laughs) On top of a Napoleonic flag, which they attempted to unscrew from the wall but failed. Neapolitan. That's, I, that's where I was going. I was like, mm, Neapolitan ice cream. <gasps> Me. Uh, Monet's Chez Tortoni was also stolen from its location in the blue room. Motion detectors record motion detector records show that the only footsteps detected in the blue room that night were at 12.27 a.m. and again at 12.53 a.m. These times match when Abath said he passed through on per- patrol. The frame... For the painting was found on security chief Lyle W. Grindle's chair near the front desk. The thieves made two trips to their car with the artwork during the theft, which lasted a total of 81 minutes. Before leaving, they visited the guard once the guards once more, telling them, quote, you'll be hearing from us in about a year, but they were never heard from again. Mm. The guards remained handcuffed until the police arrived at 815 later that morning. Altogether, 13 pieces were stolen at an estimated loss of 500 million making the robbery the largest recorded private property theft in history. Uh, Empty frames remain hanging in the museum, both in homage to the missing works and as placeholders for their potential return. The concert was Gardner's first major acquisition and one of only 34 known Vermeer works in the world. It's thought to be the most valuable, unrecovered stolen painting with a value estimated at over $200 I want to be... $200 Like, can you imagine... Like, you're just painting because it's, like, what you like to do, and then all of a sudden your work for $200 million. No, I can't imagine being that good at anything. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Another painting, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, is Rembrandt's only known seascape. The bronze finial was taken from the top of the Napoleon flag, possibly appearing like gold to the thieves. The museum's offering a $100,000 reward for this piece alone. So taken were the concert by Vermeer, the Storm on the Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt, a lady, and gem- a lady and Gentleman in Black by Rembrandt, Landscape with an Obelisk by Govert Flink, Ches Tortoni by Edouard Manet, La Sortie de Passage by Degas, Self-Portrait by Rembrandt, Cor- okay, this is French here, mm. Cortege aux Environs de Florence by Degas. Nailed it. Uh, Degas's program for an artist artistic soiree one and two, three mounted jockeys, an ancient Chinese goo, and a French imperial eagle finial. The FBI took over the case on the grounds that the artwork would likely cross state lines. They have conducted hundreds of interviews with probes stretching across the world involving Scotland Yard, Japanese and French authorities, private investigators, museum directors, and art dealers. The FBI believes the thieves were members of a criminal organization based in the mid in the Mid Atlantic and New England and that the stolen paintings were moved through Connecticut and the Philadelphia area in the years following the theft. 
Some of the art may have been offered for sale in Philadelphia in the early 2000s, including the storm on the Sea of Galilee. However, their knowledge of what happened to the works after the attempted sale is limited. The FBI stated it believed they knew the identity of the thieves in 2013, but in 2015 announced that they were now dead. Um, and they have de declined to identify the individuals. No single motive or pattern has emerged through the thousands of pages of evidence gathered. The selection of works puzzles the experts, specifically since more valuable artworks were avail available in mm. the museum. Um, the lead agent assigned to the case, Jeffrey J. Kelly, finds it difficult to understand why the assortment of items was stolen despite the thieves being in the museum for enough time to take whatever they wanted. Hmm. On their way to the finial, the thieves passed by two Raphaels and a Botticelli painting. Titans, The Rape of Europa, which is one of the museum's most well-known and valuable pieces, was not stolen. Due to the harmful waves, ways the criminals handled the robbery, cutting the paintings from their frames, smashing two frames for the two Dega sketches, investigators believe that the thieves were amateur criminals and not experts commissioned to steal particular works. Isn't that a little bit of a bummer? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You're like, <sighs> can't you appreciate this a little bit? Yeah. 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 Like, Sell swords. They're hired hands. Mm -hmm. You know that you're stealing, like, these impeccable art pieces. So why mm -hmm. wouldn't you, like, you're going to get less money for them right? if they're ruined. Stupid criminals. <laughs> Some investigators believe the works were destroyed, explaining why they haven't reappeared. Theories on the theft include that it was organized by an Irish Republican army in order to raise money or bargain for the release of imprisoned, comrade, imprisoned comrades. Another theory, mm. comrades. There you go. Jesus Christ. Another theory states Whitey Bulger was the ringleader of the theft. At the oh. time of the heist, he was Boston's top crime boss and FBI informant. Uh, the museum's first the museum first offered a reward of one million, but it was later to increase to five million in 1997. The re the reward is for information that leads directly to the recovery of all of their items in good condition, which remained the offer for more than a quarter century later. In May of 2017, the bounty was doubled to ten million with an expiration date set for midnight on December 31st of that year. The reward was extended into 2018, following an outpouring of tips from the public. Federal authorities have stated they will not charge anyone who voluntarily turns in the artwork, but anyone caught knowingly in possession of stolen items could be prosecuted. The thieves can't face charges because the five-year statute of limitations has expired. Which I think statute of limitations are stupid. I agree. Fine. In 2010, the FBI announced that some evidence from the original crime scene had been sent to the FBI's laboratory in Quantico, Virginia, for retesting with the hope of finding new DNA evidence to identify the culprits of the theft. In June of 2017, the Boston Globe reported that some of the crime scene evidence collected by the FBI was missing. Even after an exhaustive search, they were unable to locate handcuffs and duct tape used to immobilize the museum's two security guards that have contained traces of the thieves' DNA material. So they're just losing evidence. Yeah. In 1994, <sighs> the museum director, Ann Hawley, received a letter that the pro that promised the return of the pieces for $2.6 million. If interested, the museum had to get the Boston Globe to publish a coded message in the business story. The message was published, but nothing was heard further, especially once law enforcement got involved. Late one night in 1997, Boston Herald reporter Tom Mashberg was driven to a warehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn, by William Youngworth, a career criminal and associate of New England art thief Miles Connor Jr., to see what was supposed to be the storm of the Sea of Galilee. Mm. Mashberg had been investigating the theft and was briefly allowed to view the painting with a flashlight. He was given a vial of paint chips for authenticity. These were later confirmed by experts to be fragments of Dutch 17th century origin, but not from the stolen painting. Huh. It was never concretely determined to be real or fake, and the FBI quit dealing with Youngworth after not making any any progress, and that painting has since disappeared. I wonder where they That's got... That's wild, I wonder yeah. where they got Dutch 17th century origin paint fragments. Exactly. Interesting. On August 6, 2015, the FBI released a video from the night before the theft thought to possibly show a dry run of the robbery. Two men appear on the tape. One was initially unidentified, while the other has been confirmed as Richard Abath, a secu the security guard who was on duty the night of the heist. The video appears to show Abath buzzing the man into the museum twice within a few minutes. The man stayed for about three minutes in the lobby and then returned to a car and drove off. The New York Times point 
The New York Times points out that the recording draws new attention to Abath as a potential collaborator, but the guards had previously been interviewed and deemed too unimaginative to have pulled off the heist. <laughs> no, they're too stupid. <laughs> um, but it's not to say that they couldn't have been collaborators. Mm-hmm. According to the WBUR podcast Last Scene, the surveillance footage is a red herring. The person Abath let in this night was his boss, the Gardner Museum's deputy director of security. Although this was apparently against security protocol, no one was supposed to be admitted after hours, the other security guard present that night, off, only referred to as Randy, claimed that they, Randy. <laughs> claimed that they were never instructed not to let anyone in after, all, after hours, which is the reason he and Richard opened the doors for the two men dressed as police officers the following evening. In December of 2015, FBI agents searched East Boston, East Boston's Suffolk Downs horse racing track, goodness, mm-hmm. acting on a tip consistent with rumors among the employees in the 1990s that the stolen art was there. Stables and parts of the grandstand closed since the early 1990s, and two safes, which had to be drilled open, were searched without result. Boston gangster Bobby Donati may have been involved in the heist. I like that name. Bobby. Is there still gangsters? I'm sure there are. I was just thinking, like, this was the 90s. I always think of gangsters as, like, the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly not. Right. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. New England art thief Miles Connor Jr. stated that he and Bobby Donati eyed the museum in the 80s, and Donati oversaw the operation. Shortly before the robbery, Donati was seen at a nightclub with a sack of police uniforms. He worked under Boston crime boss... Vincent Ferreira and visited him in prison in the early 1990s. When Ferreira asked about the robbery, Donati said he buried the stuff and would find a way to negotiate his release. Donati was murdered in 1991 as a result of ongoing gang wars. Uh, Hartford, Connecticut gangster Robbie, goodness, <laughs> gangster Robert Bobby the Cook Gentile <laughs> has been suggested on multiple occasions as knowing the location of the Gardner Works. In May of 2012, FBI agents searched Gentile's home in Manchester, Connecticut. They didn't find any stolen works despite searching his preferred hiding spot beneath beneath a false floor with the help of his son. However, in the basement, they found a sheet of paper listing that what each stolen piece might draw on the black market. Hmm. In January of 2016, the FBI contrived gun charges against Gentile to force him to reveal the location of missing works. Uh... During a hearing, federal prosecutor revealed significant evidence tying Gentile to the crime. The prosecutor stated that he and mob partner Robert Guarante attempted to use the return of two stolen pieces to reduce a prison sentence for one of their associates. Guarante's wife told investigators in early 2015 that her husband had once had possession of some of the art and gave two paintings to Gentile before he died of cancer in 2004. While in federal prison during the 2013 during 2013 and 14, Gentile told at least three people he had knowledge of the stolen art. In 2015, he submitted to a lie detector test denying it, denying advanced knowledge of the heist or ever possessing any of the paintings. The result showed a 0.1% chance that he was truthful. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so it's like. That's rough. That's like. <laughs> that's like we just have to say. We have to say that there's a slight chance right. that you're lying because, <laughs> or a slight chance yeah. that you're telling the truth because can't tell for sure because these things don't work. Sometimes. I love that. <laughs> According to Gentile's lawyer, federal agents are convinced that he had stolen the works. Gentile's home was searched again in May of 2016 by the FBI, even though his lawyer insists that if he had stolen the artwork or had knowledge of its whereabouts, he would have turned it in for the reward money a long time ago. <laughs> God. On September 5th, 2017, he was scheduled to be sentenced for a separate weapons charge in Connecticut. When the museum raised its bounty in 1997, Miles J. Connor Jr. said that he could locate the missing artwork for for exchange for legal immunity. Uh, they rejected his offer. I'm so sorry. Connor now believes that the Gardner works have passed onto other unknown hands. I was probably, uh, quote, he said, I was probably told, but I don't remember. Oh, same. He blamed a heart attack that affected his memory. A heart attack? (laughs) Louis Royce, another Boston area gangster, claims Mm. he still owed 15% for devising the plan for two fake policemen to request access to the the museum that night. Uh, High-profile Gardner Museum theft has been referenced and parodied in many different works. It was the subject of the 2005 documentary Stolen, which first appeared in a slightly different version on Court TV. 
The more well-known paintings have been referenced in multiple shows, including the Blacklist episode, The Courier, and an allusion to the Gardner Museum heist itself in the episode Grace and Blaze. The Simpsons episode, American History Excellent, Drunk, <laughs> Drunk History episode, Boston, and American Greed. Several books were written, and in 2018, the Boston Globe and WBUR-FM launched a podcast exploring the theft titled Last Scene. There's a whole section on the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum website regarding the theft, and it says, Gardner Museum theft, an active and ongoing investigation. The museum is offering a $10 million reward for information leading to the recovery of the stolen works. Despite some promising leads in the past, the Gardner theft of 1990 remains unsolved. The museum, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney's Office are still seeking viable leads that could result in the safe return of the art. The museum is offering a reward of $10 million for information leading directly to the recovery of all 13 works in good condition. A separate reward of $100,000 is being offered for the return of the Napoleonic Eagle Finial. Anyone with information about the stolen artworks or the investigation should contact the Gardner Museum directly. Confidentiality and anonymity is guaranteed. Um, and it says to contact the director of security. And you can email theft at gardnermuseum.org. Oh, my gosh. It's unsolved. It's unsolved. I love that. Nobody knows where any of this stuff is. Well, I mean, I'm sure somebody knows. <sighs> somebody knows. Somebody did know, at least. I mean, and it's all ripped out and cut up and stuff. Right? Who wants it? <sighs> the museum. They want it back. Uh, <laughs> Emily! <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Can you imagine, like, contracting this scheme, this heist, and then they come back with these ripped up... <laughs> Would you be like, dude? I'd be like, I'm um, excuse you. Yeah, you're not getting any money now because look, you messed look it up. What you did? Oh my god, <sighs> idiots! I'm so sorry. I have to pee. Go for it. I don't even want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a task. I get it. Uh, yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> okay. So guess what? What? Mine is unsolved too. <gasps> How funny! I love that we do that I on do. accident. <laughs> Okay. okay. Um, Tell me about it. Okay. <clears throat> Dud. I liked that. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. Did you see? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. On February 5th, 2012, social worker Elizabeth Hall called 911 after bringing Charlie and Braden Powell to a supervised visit with their father, Joshua Powell. When the social worker arrived at the home to supervise the visit between the boys and their dad, Joshua grabbed the children and shut the door, locking her out. Shortly after, the house exploded with the boys and their father inside. Oh, my gosh. I know. Joshua Powell met Susan Cox, a classmate at his LDS Institute of Religion course in November of 2000. The boys began a relationship. Oh, the boys. The two began a that's next. The two began a relationship and eventually married at the Portland, Oregon Temple in April 2001. The Powells went on to have two sons, Charles, born in 2005, and Braden, born in 2007. For a short time after they were married, the couple lived with Stephen Powell, um, Joshua's father, in his home in South Hill, Washington. Stephen Powell developed an obsessive infatuation with Susan, um, which was made worse by them living so living together and being so close to each other. Stephen followed Susan around the house with a camcorder, mm. used a small mirror to spy on her while she used the bathroom, stole her underwear from her laundry, read her adult journals, and even posted love songs online under a pseudonym, like, dedicated to her. What? Yeah. So, uh, I have watched a few things about it because that's what I like to do. Yeah. Um, and there was a new one on Oxygen just recently about the disappearance of Susan Powell. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And just, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And um, I watched all of that. This guy was crazy. Like, he would wait for her to get into the bath oh. so that he could just run and get her laundry, like, fresh. And That's he'd record himself talking about it. He would, like, record her. He'd record her clothes. He would then set up the camcorder and, like, record himself talking about how into her he was. Oh. Why is? Why do you want to watch That's that back? Creepy. Do you know what I, I mean? I don't like that. Me either. In 2003, um, Stephen confessed his feelings to uh, a stunned Susan. She rejected him. The encounter was inadvertently captured by Stephen's camcorder microphone. The Powells moved out of state uh, soon after, partly so Susan could distance herself from Stephen. Mm -hmm. There was tension in the Powell marriage. Um, 
Indicated by Susan's journal entries and email correspondence at the time, Joshua refused to attend church services with Susan and the kids and continued to stay in contact with his father, Stephen, despite his ongoing advances towards Susan. So even though they lived hours away Uh and in different states, he would still, like, follow her outside of her work without her knowledge and record her. Um, Later, one of Josh— Yeah, one of Joshua's sisters, Alina, would say that Susan enjoyed the attention. Um, In the videos, you can hear Stephen saying, um, that's so funny, I spelled his name two different ways with a P-H and a V. (laughs) (laughs) You can see, Stephen is like, oh, she knows I'm here. She'll go to get in her car and like her skirt will lift up just like the tiniest bit because that's what happens. And he'll be like, she did that for me. I mean, he's obsessed. Oh, my God. Um, okay. Josh refused to attend church services with Susan and the kids and continued to stay in contact with his dad. Susan's friends also pointed out that Josh um, had extravagant spending habits and he was extremely controlling towards his wife. Um, He filed for bankruptcy in 2007, declaring over $2,000 in debts. So he spent a ton of money and she would get like $100 $100 a week as an allowance, and mm-hmm. she would need to use that for groceries as well. $100 a week for a family of four is totally doable, but it's tight. Yeah. And and you're you're just like, that's it. You're getting groceries and toilet paper and maybe some laundry soap, and that's it. <laughs> I mean, yikes. Um, <clears throat> Susan recorded a video in July 2008 surveying property damage that she said Josh did Um, And she wrote a secret will that included the statements, quote, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. And, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that was in 2008. On the morning of December 6, 2009, Susan, Charles, and Braden attended church services at the Hunter 36 Ward. Good for them. I don't know. I don't know why they add in things like that. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) A neighbor visited them at home in the afternoon and left about 5 o'clock. So that was like the last person that saw Mm -hmm. Susan and the boys. Or the last person that saw Susan. I'm sorry. At first, the entire Powell family was reported missing on December 7th by relatives when they did not show up to work and no one took the boys to daycare. Joshua's... mm, Yeah, Joshua's mother... Terica and sister Jennifer Graves went looking for the family at their house. No, that was Susan's mother. Okay. Yeah. They called the police when they failed to make contact with Joshua and Susan. The police broke into the house, fearing that they might be victims of carbon monoxide poisoning. They didn't find anyone, but they did see two box fans blowing at a wet, freshly cleaned couch. And Susan's purse, wallet, and ID were all found there. Her cell phone was later found in the family's only vehicle, a minivan that Joshua had been driving. Later that day, at like 5 p.m. in the afternoon, Joshua returned home with the two boys and was taken to the police station for questioning. He claimed he had left Susan sleeping at home shortly after midnight on December 7th Mm -hmm. and had taken his boys on a camping trip in western Utah. Police visited Simpson Springs, um, the campsite, on December 10th but found no evidence that Joshua had been there. Like, that there had been a camp right. made there. They also found it suspicious that he would take his two- and four-year-old out camping after midnight on a Sunday night when he had work the next day. Mm-hmm. And he didn't mention to his boss he wasn't coming in, nothing like that. Um, he explained to police it was because he thought that he was leaving on Saturday night instead of Sunday night, and the next day was Sunday, not Monday. So he was just confused on the days. <sighs> Even right. though they'd been to church. Right. Upon searching the Powell residence on December 9th, investigators found traces of Susan's blood on the floor, mm-hmm. the life insurance policies on Susan for $1.5 million, and then that handwritten letter from Susan expressing fear for her life. DNA test results released later matched one blood sample with Susan, while another sample was determined to have come from a, quote, unknown male contributor. Um, the police say that Joshua was doing things that were highly suspicious following someone's disappearance. Mm -hmm. You know how they always say, well, he didn't act like we think they should act. Right. He did not appear to be concerned about her welfare. When first questioned by police, he had liquidated her retirement accounts. 
canceled her regularly scheduled chiropractic sessions, withdrew his children from daycare, and spoke to coworkers about how to hide a body in an abandoned mine shaft in the western Utah desert. So, basically, (sighs) he's like, no, she's missing, but she's, you know, he's like, she's dead. Yeah. We're just going to go ahead, and she doesn't need chiropractic anymore, chiropractor anymore. We don't need the daycare anymore. I mean, yeah. Police interviewed uh, the oldest Powell son, Charlie, who confirmed that the camping trip did take place. However, unlike what Joshua said, he stated that Susan had gone with them but did not come back. (sighs) Weeks after her disappearance, a teacher reported that Charlie had claimed that his mother was dead and that um, Susan's parents, Chuck and Jody, Chuck and Judy, claimed that while at Daycare several months after the disappearance, Braden, the younger boy, drew a picture of a van with three people in it and told the daycare workers that mommy was in the trunk. Oh, my God. I know. <gasps> On December 14th, Joshua retained an attorney in connection with the investigation, and police said that he grew increasingly uncooperative. A few days later, he took his sons to Washington to stay with Stephen for the holidays. But by December 24th, Joshua was considered a person of interest in the investigation, obviously. Mm -hmm. On January 6th, he returned with his brother, Michael, to pack the family belongings, indicating he was moving permanently to Washington. So, I mean, just a few months after, he's out of there. Mm. Um, In Washington, Joshua Powell lived with his two sons, his father, Stephen Powell, his brothers, Michael and Jonathan, and his sister, Alina. So this is, these are all adult children, like yeah. 20s, 30s. I could not live with my mother unless it was just necessary. Do you right. know what I mean? I just yeah. couldn't. Um, my mom always asked me to move in with her, and I'm like, Mom, you realize how crap our relationship would turn right? if we moved in together now? Both of you trying to be in charge? Yeah. Oh. Like, I've been independent for so many years, I cannot. Yeah. I'll move next door to you. Yes, that sounds good. <laughs> but okay. I will not move in with you. No. <laughs> Have to live on her dinner schedule? Her <sighs> chore schedule? No. No way. She doesn't eat food. <laughs> she eats, like, lettuce, and that's it. Well, she, your mom is, live that your mom is a gorgeous woman, though. She is. She's perfect. Mm. Happy Mother's Day, Emily's mom. <laughs> <laughs> Investigators. Okay, focused. Murder. Okay. Maybe. Investigator scrutiny extended to Stephen upon learning from a family friend that he had been obsessed with his son's wife. Finally, it gets mentioned. Mm -hmm. Computer images seized from Stephen's house in 2010 turn up 4,500 images of Susan taken without her knowledge. Oh, my God. Including close-ups of specific body parts. Police also turned their attention to Michael Powell after learning that he had sold his broken-down 1997 Ford Taurus to a wrecking yard in Oregon shortly after Susan's disappearance and had later ordered satellite images of the lot of the wrecking yard. When police found the car, a canine dog indicated that a decomposing human body had been in the trunk, Mm. but DNA tests on the car proved inconclusive. Okay, but so what a good dog. Right? What a good boy. (laughs) Uh, Relationships between the Powell and Cox family, so Joshua's family and Susan's families, became obviously hostile. After a police raid in their home, both Joshua and Stephen spoke to major news outlets regarding journals that Susan had allegedly written about the now being called relationship Mm -hmm. between her father-in-law, Stephen, and herself. Stephen claimed that he and Susan had been falling in love prior to her disappearance, and he cited, yeah, the content of journals. These were teenage journals, not her adult. Okay. So years old, as evidence to support his theory that she was mentally unstable and could have run away with another man. Oh, my God. She wasn't even with this guy then. So, of course, anyway, every teenager is mentally unstable. Right. (sighs) On September 22nd, Stephen was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography after police found evidence that he had secretly videotaped numerous women and young girls, obviously including Susan. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. A friend of Stephen claimed that he was preoccupied with pornography and was hung up on Susan specifically. Um, Let me just—I'm going to make a little note so I don't miss my place. So in the— in the date, it's an oxygen special, but there was also like a 2020, I think, about it or a okay. Dayline or something um, that I watched over the weekend. And it, they also say that Stephen Powell 
like showed his children pornography and talked about really adult topics with his children, that there was a lot of controlling behavior going on with him and his children when they were young that mm. continued to adulthood. Mm-hmm. So they all still live there. Um, you know, right after Susan and Joshua got married, they lived there for a while. And obviously Susan had to push to move out of that situation. Oh my God. So he was just like a terrible, terrible dude. Yeah. I don't like him. Um, <clears throat> Susan's father, Chuck Cox, filed for custody of Susan's children the day after Stephen was arrested Mm -hmm. uh, because they lived with him. Mm -hmm. A Washington court eventually granted Cox temporary emergency custody of the boys, ruling that Joshua would have to move out of Stephen's home if he wanted to regain custody. Okay. Joshua rented a house in South Hill, Washington, but authorities later alleged or claimed that he had never actually moved into that house, merely making it appear as if he had satisfied the court's instructions. Mm -hmm. Um, And he continued to stay at his dad's house. In late September of 2011, Joshua's sister Jennifer stated that she believed Joshua was responsible for his wife's disappearance. His other sister, Alina, had also been suspicious of him. However, she later withdrew those suspicions and said that she felt Joshua had been harassed by the investigating detectives. So she kind of, like, agrees as far as the storyline goes and then backs out and is like, no, there's no way. That didn't happen. Yeah. But then there's this one sister, and you know how it is. There's, like, that one kid who sees all the weirdness that's going on, and she's like, hey, this family's fucked. Yeah. And so she she knew it. She's the one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, in late 2011, Joshua underwent a series of court-ordered evaluations in Washington, Um. The evaluations by James Manley, I don't know. I try to leave names out that don't really matter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the evaluations determined that Joshua had decent parenting skills, steady employment history, no criminal record or documented history of domestic violence, like, Mm -hmm. anywhere other than, you know, his wife. Yeah. However, um, he did raise issues concerning the ongoing criminal investigations, his failure to admit Normal personal shortcomings. So he would just like, he wouldn't say like, yeah, I get defensive sometimes. Or yeah, I can be blunt. You know, none of that. Right. He just couldn't admit it. His overbearing behavior with his sons, so controlling, mm-hmm. and his persistent defensiveness and paranoia, um, saying that he had narcissistic traits. Mm-hmm. The initial recommendation was for Joshua to have visitation with his son several times a week, supervised by a social worker. In the last week of January 2012, Utah police discovered about 400 images of simulated child pornography, bestiality, and incest on Joshua's computer. Oh, my God. Yeah. The images were not considered illegal because they were either hand-drawn or cartoon 3D formats, which were cause for great concern, but not illegal particularly given Joshua's early denial of possessing any such material, Mm -hmm. Joshua was recommended to receive a more thorough psychosexual evaluation and polygraph test, but um, the investigator suggested no change in the visitation schedule with the boys to continue letting him have um, visitation. Just a few short weeks later, Joshua Powell would set his home on fire and kill himself and the boys inside their home. Oh, my God. Okay, so we're back to where I started. After a brief investigation of the burnt home, officials confirmed that the explosion had been deliberately planned. The official cause of death for Joshua and the two boys were determined to be carbon monoxide poisoning, though the coroner also noted that both children had significant chopping injuries on the head and neck. Oh, my God. A hatchet was recovered near Joshua's body, and investigators believe that he attacked the boys with it before being overwhelmed by smoke and fumes. Um, The fire investigation also found two five-gallon cans of gasoline on the premises, as well as evidence that gasoline had been spread throughout the house. Friends and relatives of Joshua told authorities that he had contacted them by email minutes before the incident to say goodbye. Some of them, including his pastor, received instructions about finding his money and shutting off his utilities. He was very business. (laughs) Records also showed that he had withdrawn $7,000 from his bank account and had donated donated his children's toys and books to local charities the day before the incident. Oh, my God. 
Joshua named Michael as the main beneficiary of his life insurance policy, his brother. Okay. Charles and Brayden are buried at Woodbine Cemetery, which also contains a memorial for their mother. Joshua's remains were cremated. On February 11th, 2013, approximately one year after the death of Joshua and his sons, um, Joshua's brother Michael took his own life in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he had moved for graduate school. He jumped from the roof of a parking garage. Holy shit. Police had questioned Michael several times in 2012 after discovering his abandoned Ford Taurus at the wrecking yard. Michael was evasive about why he left his car at the location. Utah authorities have since said they believe that Joshua and Michael were accomplices in the murder of Susan. Um, They, in the documentary that I watched, they also talk about how they believe Stephen Powell, like, was the mastermind and orchestrated it and that Joshua and Michael basically carried it out. Mm -hmm. On May 21, or just maybe, like, he coerced them. Right. On May 21st, 2013, West Valley City Police announced that they had closed the active investigation into Susan Powell's disappearance. Stephen Powell was released from prison on July 11th, 2017, after serving a total of seven years following his voyeurism and child pornography convictions. Stephen died of natural causes on Monday, July 23rd, 2018, in Tacoma, Washington. Susan remains a missing person, but given the fates of her sons, it is widely believed that she was murdered by her husband. Mm -hmm. There are calls as of March 2018 to have her declared dead with the cause being homicide. Oh, my God. Nobody. I don't. And that guy. It's just like one thing after another. I know. I know. It's a pretty... Like, popular one right now, I feel, that story. Yeah, I was like, those names sound real familiar. Yeah, and I, you know, there's, like, video, and it seems, you know, video of her, and he seems like he's flirting with her and that she's flirting back. But you know how it is when there's, like, someone in kind of authority of Mm -hmm. you or whatever position of power, and Mm -hmm. they kind of flirt with you, and you kind of just, like, have to, like, I need this job or— yeah. This is where I live. This You're is my like husband. Me. You know, this is my father-in-law. So I'm just going to, okay, ha-ha, you laugh it off and move on. Yeah, and like I feel like in that situation, like more father-in-law type of deal, you're more you're more apt to be like, he's my father-in-law. He would never. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, exactly. Because she'll be like, he. there's like videos of her him like looking at her legs. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, he's standing there with a video camera pointing them at your bare legs. Yeah, so that's a little. She would make a comment. She'd like flip him at him and be like, I waxed yesterday. Can you believe that? Or, you know, right. it wasn't like, ooh, I waxed yesterday. Get a feel. It was like, yeah. like, haha. It was like, quit fucking recording me. Like, you're making me uncomfortable. Maybe yeah. by acknowledging that I know that you're doing this, mm-hmm. you'll stop. That's how it felt to me. Ugh. And it really feels like the siblings that lived in the house were, if not all of them involved, definitely aware of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So, mm, my gosh. Yeah. I don't like that. Me either. I'd rather deal with stolen artwork. Stolen artwork every time. Ugh. That's it. The disappearance of Susan Powell. Unsolved as well. Now it's time for me to go research next week's. I know, right? Right now. (laughs) Now I gotta go figure out what I'm doing for this next recording. Oh my goodness. It's 1030. It's kind of cold. I think I'm going to ride my bike home and get soup and Bring it back in the car. Some soup. Some soup. Some soup. I really want riced cauliflower, though, from Fresh Take Kitchen. Mm. It's really good. Christopher's like, I tricked him a couple weeks ago with cauliflower mashed potatoes. Oh, he did it? Yeah, that's good, and I though. And didn't, I didn't tell him about it. I just made them, and we ate them, and he was like, it's like, you know. What did he notice? Was. He's like, I thought the texture was a little different. He's like, but it. Because it's like, like yeah. softer or something. And then he said, he goes, please don't make those again for me. <laughs> oh. And I was like, which I understand. Yeah. It's definitely like that texture was definitely, you know, a little weird. Right. Between regular mashed potatoes and mashed cauliflower is definitely a weird, a different texture. Mm-hmm. He's like, please just don't. Let's not do that again. <laughs> so I <laughs> I pulled out the rice cauliflower to steam mm-hmm. it and put and then get ready to put it in. And I dumped it in like with that. And he goes. Did it call for that? And I was like, yes, it did. I said, just give it a try. I said, if you don't like it, I'll make you something else for dinner. Right. And he's like, he couldn't he couldn't even tell. I was like, you can't even tell that there's cauliflower in it. And he's like, no, you can. He's and like, I it's love actually cauliflower. really, really good. Yeah. And I was like, see, it's okay. 
Good for Christopher. It's okay. Growing up, trying <laughs> new then, things. What a big boy. So he's like, we were we were talking about like carbs and stuff. Yeah. And he was like, you, he's like, how many, he's like, and this is low carb. And I was like, yeah. I was like, honestly, there's like in this whole thing, like four carbs, this mm-hmm. whole entire thing. So you're one serving, you're only getting like one. Right. And he's like, really? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, how many did you eat today? I was like, this is it. Because mm-hmm. I had sausage and eggs for breakfast. There's right. no, there's none in that. I was like, this is it. And he's like, seriously? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, I wonder how many I eat in a day. And he started calculating. <laughs> so oh, he no. has a bowl of sugary cereal with his milk. And then he has a Milk peanut- has carbs, too. Yeah. yeah. And then he has a peanut. I can't drink. I can't drink. Yeah. Milk. And then he has a peanut butter and jelly. Pretzels mm, mm. and orange, like all. Oh this, my God! All it's this, all carbs. And then all day. he goes, yeah. And then he goes, whatever, whatever I have for dinner. Or he asked, how many did you used to eat? And I was like, well, however many are in that box of macaroni and cheese and a fucking pizza in the freezer. I was like, that's how many I would eat. And he's like, oh geez. And then he started, and he's like, I eat like three hundred and fifty in a day. And he goes, and you're trying to stay under twenty. And I was like, honestly, I've like, for the most. Couple, past couple weeks, I've been, like, under 10. Yeah. And he's like, that's insane. He's like, I eat too many carbs. He goes, I'm going to get fat. And I was like, you're Oh, not. my God, that skinny little dude. I know. He's got a real good metabolism. But Gosh. I was like, <laughs> it was really, he's, uh, like, starting to panic. He was, oh, my gosh. Man. <laughs> like, like, at 15, he had just only made his peanut butter and jelly. He's yeah. like, I was like, he's like, I hadn't even factored in my pretzels and my orange. And I was like, don't forget your cereal in the morning. Oh, <laughs> Like, and he goes, oh, but what about the ice cream? And I was like, oh, like, that's a lot. Like, it's, it adds up and it adds up fast. And he goes, that's crazy. Maybe I should cut out carbs. I can't. I just can't. It's it's hard. (sighs) I thought out of all I don't even like meat. uh, See, I like, I like. I don't like eggs. You eat egg, like hard boiled eggs and sausage patties every morning. And that sounds like punishment to me. Yeah. That would be really (laughs) hard for you. I thought that macaroni and cheese, like, I thought that would be, like, my breaking point. Yeah. Out of all the carbs. You thought it would be mac and cheese? I thought it would be mac and cheese that I would be, like, I just want. But. No? Nah. (sighs) Which really surprised me. I did find loaded cauliflower mac and cheese, though. Ooh. Which I haven't tried yet. I'm waiting for that meal that macaroni and cheese goes with. That sounds good. So. Okay. I'll try that eventually and let you know. But I was like, 350 carbs. I need to eat less. Just I just eat a lot. Yeah. I just like it. I kind of like, like, I don't mind it because I can eat a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I can eat. I can't. I am barely five foot tall. Right. So, like... There's not a lot of places like, for it to go. My <laughs> kid doesn't, doesn't spread out yeah. just the way I want. Like, I had a snack. We had, like, we had kind of a late breakfast. So we had just kind of a little snack to hold us over mm-hmm. until we had dinner. And so I had, like, olives and a cheese stick and mm. some pepperonis. And then olives. I get the little cheese crisps to put on, mm. like, salad and stuff instead of croutons. And I ate a handful of those. And I was like, I could eat all of this and not have to worry about anything. Mm. It's good. So I like but that. But it's just really funny. He's like 350 carbs in a day. I was like, I'm I, I don't even want to add mine up. I was like, I get it. This morning I ate yogurt and an apple, and I'm like, hey, good for me. But that's a lot of carbs. Mm-hmm. Yogurt and an apple is a lot of carbs. Yeah. Um I gotta, it's the beer. It's yeah. the beer. I gotta cut out the IPAs. <laughs> the, the two IPAs every single night. I found so I with this whole thing and then like with trying to cut out pop again, mm-hmm. um, sparkling, you know, I've been on a sparkling water kick, obviously, with all my belches in the past <laughs> 20 episodes. Have you even burped today? I don't think so. I think I did once. I don't know. Anyway. But I found hard sparkling water. Hard? Oh, yeah, okay. Henry's hard sparkling water. And it was kind of gross. But yeah. So what I what I did is when I went to Kroger this morning. <laughs> oh my god! I picked up some Mio to put in it because I know that because it doesn't have like even though it's flavored like the one was like blueberry lemon or something. Mm-hmm. It didn't have any flavor. Ugh. And so I was like, that was like the biggest thing. It was just like it just tasted like alcoholy, like alcoholy. It, it wasn't. It wasn't uh-huh. as carbonated as sparkling water is. So it was just. It tasted like a flat. 
sparkling water that was like mm. kind. Yeah. So I was like, you know what'll be good. And I tried to like last night for dinner, I mixed them. Like mm-hmm. I mixed a sparkling water with the the drink. And I was like, it just needs like a it needs a splash of flavor. That's right. all it needs. So I bought some Mio today to try nice. it tonight. And hopefully that'll solve it. I think I'm gonna take a drinking break, but it's warm out. I love to I drink when it's warm. I know. I, I love to drink when it's cold. <laughs> I just love to drink. I do. Oh no. I get it. But it's it's a lot. It's like it's a lot. It's a lot. It's of, a, lot. <laughs> a lot of carbs, a lot of calories. Because I don't drink the light mm-hmm. beer. Of course I don't. Yeah. Ugh, I really I'm disgusted with myself. It's okay. Okay, we did it finally. Yay, we us. did it. Now it's time to go edit. <clears throat> oh, I got to pee first. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye.